Uh, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for, God, the life you call for us to live and the experience we're supposed to have with you. And, and I pray that we would do it in a way that honors you and blesses you, Lord. And today I pray you would make this time we're about to go into your word very, very clear and very, very loving. And, and yet, God, I pray we would shine truth, uh, a light on truth and, and grab it and hold on to it and not want to let go of it. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this uh, past week, uh, it was kind of interesting. Uh, Pam had decided to give me my Valentine's present in a little more delayed way. And what happened is I had kind of taken over Valentine's Day from her, and that's her day, because I just really wanted to make her feel special, and honestly, because I had a lot to make up for. And uh, so, so I, I took over. Well, that delayed her plans, but she had already planned something. And, and so what happened is she got a hold of Talia, my assistant, and she had my uh, schedule redone, and I didn't even realize it. And so I show up on a Thursday, and things are all changed around. And uh, Pam calls and says, you want to grab lunch? And I said, well, yeah, I, my lunchtime thing changed. Yeah, I'm free. And so Pam comes over, and, and so we are talking with everybody. And we go walking out towards the parking lot, and I'm heading right to my car. And Pam goes, no, 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 we're over here. And I said, no, Pam, I'm right there. She goes, no, you're not. And she walked me up to a Hummer too. And um, now, let me be clear, she didn't give me the Hummer, okay, that, that, but, but, but it's, it's actually maybe better. What happened is Tyler Heckland, who goes here, knows that a Hummer's, the H2 is my all-time favorite car ever, and now that I've driven it, oh yeah, and, uh, but, but, but he has one, and he thought, I want to let Chuck use it for a while, not like just for a day, but like a week or so, and so Carrie, his sister, and his mom got involved, and Pam got involved, and they said, let's do this for Valentine's Day, and, and so Pam goes, Tyler did this for you, you get to drive it, and I'm like, oh yeah, no way, and I got in it. You, it's incredible. I mean, the, the leather seat is like you're riding in an easy chair. I, the, the thing is so big, I have to like call to Pam. Hey, can I call you and talk to you, you know, on the other side? And it is so cool. But, but now, the fun thing is, it's big. Man, when you're going down the road, everybody better move for you in that, you know. And you're looking down, and, and it's awesome. What it did remind me of, though, because it's so big and it's a little tough to navigate, it is that uh, there was this guy, and I read about this in the Reader's Digest, and what happened is uh, he wanted to go camping with his wife, and so he bought, he didn't want a motorhome, uh, he decided to buy a big Ford F-250 and a huge trailer that they could, you know, really is luxurious, but the thing was enormous, and that way he could pull into a, a trailer park or an RV place, unhook, and have the truck to go around in, and he thought that was the best way to do it. So he gets this huge trailer, this truck, and they're heading out across the country. And man, they are loving it. It is so fun and so exciting. But, but they hit a place where he's extremely tired. And his wife says, honey, tomorrow just let me drive it and you can nap in the back and then you'll enjoy our trip more. And he said, you can't drive this thing. I mean, that's huge. And turning it, she goes, I can drive it. He goes, she goes, you're getting me mad. I can drive it. And now he's kind of realizing he could kind of ruin the trip and yet he really doesn't trust her. So the next day they get everything all ready and he thought, okay, I'll nap and, and then when we hit the first rest stop, I'll take back over and he's actually praying, please God, don't let her wreck it. And, and, and so he goes inside and he gets in and he strips down and he's in his underwear laying in the bed, but he can't sleep. As it takes off, he's feeling like, oh, is something wrong? And as she makes a turn, he's thinking, please don't hear a grinding sound of her clipping something. And, and, and so they're going along, and he's trying to relax. And then she goes into this little kind of town, and she's flying through, and the light changes on her. So she hits the brakes, and she's kind of lurching a little, you know, not to go through the light. And he's freaking out, and hears this, and he thinks, oh, my gosh, she hit something. And without thinking, he opens the door, and he's looking out, and he steps out, and the light changes, and she takes off. 
and he's standing there in his underwear. <laughs> and, and the police had to catch her with him in the back and a blanket over it. But, uh, yeah. You know what we're going to talk about today is not getting caught uh, with our pants down. <laughs> uh, not getting caught like that. And, and here's where I want to go. I, you know, I think the truth of the matter is, uh, this, the vast majority of us, if I really, I really believe, if I nail you down on this, you'd say, I really do want to live a life that honors God. I, I really want to live in a way that, that makes sense because I do love Him. And, and why is that? It's because you're seeking to do what we're calling level four around here. Level one is where you're exploring and wondering, you know, about who God is and you might even believe, but you haven't made that decision to truly make a commitment. Then level two is where conversion takes place. You say yes to God and the Holy Spirit enters you and man, everything starts to change and you're forgiven and you're cleansed. And how do you do that? Well, you pray and you call on the name of the Lord and we're going to see that more in a minute. Then, then level three is where you're connecting with God through prayer, through meditation. Uh, and we're going to get into that more later too. But it's very real. The connection's very, very real. But level four up here, it, this isn't perfection. This is all out commitment. As a matter of fact, when I'm at level four, I'm probably more aware than ever about the imperfections in my life. But I know how much I want him to change. I want God to mold me. I want to become more and more like Jesus. I want to follow him. And I begin to realize, okay, I'm a little short here. God, help me to grow in that area. But, but you know what? I, it's a person who's up here, prays this prayer. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. I, I want to live all out for you. And that's what God wants for you. Now, if we're going to talk about level four living, there's a passage of scripture we have to talk about. And it's in Romans chapter 12. And, and I want you to look what it says here. It says this. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, now, did you catch what it says there? It says that you will, when you live this way, you prove what the will of God is. Uh, you, you show people that it's for real. But we've got a problem today. We, and the problem is when you look at the church at large, we're not seeing people who are living this way. And they're, if they're living this way, people look and go, man, I want what they have. Now, now you've got to grab this. Something's going on here. And, and we've got to move apart from that. We've got to see that change. You see, we're going to talk in a minute about the whole idea that God wants us to live a life that is shining out as lights in a world of darkness. God wants us not to be conformed to the world, but we're seeing Christians conformed to the world. And so what he wants is this transformation. Now, before we could talk about that, though, there's a word there, and I see it in chapter 12, verse 1. It's the word, therefore. Whenever you see therefore, you always ask what it's there for. What is it talking about? And, and, and to study the book correctly, to study the letter of Romans correctly, we have to look at why Paul said therefore, therefore, because of what I will do this. Now, this is an interesting one. In the vast majority of cases when the word therefore is used, you just look at the preceding verses. But in this case, we can't do that. In this case, we've got to look at all 11 chapters of the book of Romans. This is the most amazing philosophy ever written. This is the most amazing life statement ever put out. The most amazing treatise we've ever been delivered. In all the history of mankind is the book of Romans. 
And, and so what happens is Paul builds a case incredibly well, laying out a major realm of thought that he wants us to grab hold of. And when he hits the therefore, it's based on the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. So guess what we're about to do? We're going to do Romans 1 through 11 in 10 minutes. That's what, and, and I think you're going to grab it. And so I, I hope you grab your bulletins and the sheet that's in it, and, and we're going to look at it. But before we can do it, let me have you think this through with me. If you write a quality treatise, if you write a quality argument, uh, everybody here knows this. What do you do? You begin with your statement, your purpose, your goal, and you summarize it at the end. Everybody understand that? So Paul did that. And, and it may surprise you a little what he's shooting at, what his goal is in this book. Turn over to Romans chapter 1, verse 5, and look what it says here. Romans 1, verse 5. He says, Through whom, it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. He said, why am I an apostle? What am I called to do? I'm called to bring about the obedience to the faith. Not just faith, obedience to the faith. Turn over to Romans chapter 16 and look at verse 26. And notice he's going to end the book with this. Verse 26. But now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, all of scripture, all of God's reasoning has been made known to the nations. Why? It's leading to obedience of faith. Now, now I want you to grab that. He says, I'm about to talk to you about why you need to live a life that's obedient and faithful to God. And it's an obedience to a faith that literally permeates and radiates from all your life. I'm calling you to obedience of faith. And he says, that's my job. That's my calling. That's the purpose of all scripture to bring you to this place. And why does Paul say that? Well, grab your sheet again if you haven't already done it. And look what he says. Uh, in chapter 1 and 2 of the book of Romans, here's his statement. He wants you to know that God is right to judge and God will judge fairly. God has a right to judge people individually in societies and nations and God will judge fairly. So God is going to judge. He begins the book by saying God will bring judgment against all unrighteousness and ungodliness amongst men. God's going to judge. And then in 1 and 2, he says something else. He says, and you and I, we actually affirm God's right to judge in fairness and judgment. Why? Because we condemn the very things he condemns, but then we go out and do them. In other words, if it, let's, let's get where Paul's going. He says, everybody here agrees you do not think someone should lie. And you hate being lied to. And then every time you lie, you prove that you are unrighteous. Matter of fact, you're doing the very thing you said you hate someone to do. Man, I hate it when someone lies to me. And then you turn around and lie. And see, it says, see, that proves God's right to judge. Uh, uh, how about this one? Don't you hate it when someone talks behind your back? And he says, you know what? You men, you, I hate that. And then you turn around and do it. You prove that God's right to judge. I uh, one time was sitting with a, a, a woman and talking with her. And uh, as we're talking, she just had an extreme amount of fear. And... Uh, I kept thinking, okay, I, I, where is this coming from? Now, here was her fear. Her fear was the guy that she was with would cheat on her. And, and as we're talking, and I, and I said, well, you know, has he giving you any signs that he's doing this, that he's cheating on you? Well, no, not really. Has he withdrawn his affection from you? No, not really. I said, but, but man, this is an amazing fear in your life, and it's almost ruining your relationship. 
Well, it wasn't in that session. It was in the next session we're talking. And guess what? I find out that the way this couple got together is he was with someone else and cheated on that other person with her. And you know what her words were to me before I found that out? Listen to this. She said, I can't imagine anything more hurtful than if he were to cheat on me. I can't imagine anything more hurtful. And yet she did that to somebody else. She said, I don't know if there's a greater pain that could be inflicted on anybody in life. And she said, you know what? I went out and did that to somebody. Now, she didn't say those words. She just didn't want it to happen to her. But see, God looks at her and says, see, the very thing you're angry about, the very thing you condemn, you do. And, and he says, I'm right to judge you. I'm right to put judgment upon you. And that's how Paul begins this letter. And then in chapters 3 and through 5, guess what he says? He says, all are guilty and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody has sin. And, and so what is he saying? Since all are guilty, then everybody needs to be saved by faith. His point is, everybody can be judged. Therefore, God now wants to save us based on faith in Jesus Christ, not on works of our own. And he says, everybody needs that. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek. You need to be saved by faith. It doesn't matter if you're smart or you're not quite as smart. You need to be saved by faith. It doesn't matter if you're wealthy or you're not quite as well off. You need to be saved by faith. It doesn't matter how much sin you've done. Some sinned a huge amount, some sinned less. All sin should be judged. Therefore, everybody needs to be saved by faith. And then he hits a real home run with this one. Even Abraham needs to be saved by faith. He said everybody needs it. And so then in chapter 6, he says this, faith in Christ means we're dead to sin and alive to God. Well, what does this faith mean? He says, if you need to be saved by faith, well, what is that faith? That faith is this, that I trust God with everything I have. So I die to myself and I allow myself to be literally uh, uh, go through a, a dying process to self, which we talked about before. And then God makes me alive to him. And I don't live for me anymore. I live for him. And he says, that's what happens. When I really have faith in God, it's all about living my life for him, serving him, literally seeking him. And remember, this is obedience to the faith. You remember that's the point. And he says, so now I've understood that if I'm going to have faith, it's a lifestyle where I say yes to him. And Paul warns us about something in Romans chapter 6. He says this. He says, you know what? Whatever you, you obey, that is what you're slave to. So if I am lustful, I'm a slave to lust. If I'm selfish, it's a slave to selfishness. He said, but if you love Jesus and you live for Jesus, you become a slave for Jesus, which leads to life. Then in chapter 7, he says, but there's a problem. Even though we've all committed to this lifestyle, we find ourselves still having struggle. You know, the bottom line is the very thing I don't want to do, I end up doing. And the very thing that I, I want to do, I find myself not doing. And you say, well, wait a minute. If I have obedience to the faith and I keep messing up, what's going to free me from this? Then chapter 8 comes along. And in chapter 8, he says, we have the victory through Jesus. He says, Jesus can deliver you. Jesus will deliver you. And he says, I want you to know that it's by the power of the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Holy Spirit that you become a child of God. How does this transformation take place? Not by my seeking to go out and earn it, but by my seeking to be transformed by the power and the moving of the Spirit in my life. And it frees me from this. So now I'm more than a conqueror so that I might go and live out this faith that God has for me. And then chapter 9 is the one that messes everybody up. But don't miss this. In chapters 9 and 10, here's what he's saying. He's saying God has the right to choose how people are saved 
and no one has the right to question him. God's not going to put this up for a vote. He's made the decision. And he has the right to do it. So in chapter 9, he begins by saying God has always reserved the right to choose. He chose Jacob over Esau. That was God's right to do. He chose to harden Pharaoh's heart. That was God's right to do. Paul's point is God has the right to do whatever he wants. So since God has the right to bestow salvation however he wants, chapter 10, now this is where it gets important, says how does God bestow salvation? You ready? That if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you're saved. How does God choose to bestow salvation? He has chosen to bestow salvation that if you, everybody here has a choice, if you would confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's what God has chosen to do. And then Paul gets to chapter 11 and says, do you understand how incredible this is? That God has chosen to be merciful he has the right to judge, but he doesn't want to. He's given you an ch- opportunity to live a life obediently faithful to him, where you would know him and know his love, where the spirit would transform you. Do you realize he's given you the choice to be a part of this? And, and, and everyone has the right to choose in. Do you realize how loving this is and how kind this is? He says, that's amazing. And then in chapter 11, look how he ends it in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable is judgment and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. He says, oh, I I just got to tell you, Paul says, this is beyond anything anybody could ask or think. That God would love like this. That God would care like this. That God would have mercy like this. Because we all deserve judgment. And yet he's chosen to have Jesus take our judgment. And allow us to have faith and trust that would transform us to live a whole new life. And he says, that's what's so amazing about it. And he's chosen to give you the choice to do it. And if you would call on the name of the Lord, you'd be saved. He says, if you would say he's going to be the one you serve. Now don't miss that. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord. Romans 10, 17, if you call on the name of the Lord, if you put yourself in a position to say he's the authority in my life, that's what happens. He said, that's real faith. And that's what I'm trying to get you to understand. He says, and if you understand that, if you've grabbed that, therefore, no, notice chapter 12, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. He says, if you really got it, I want you to do something with it. What is the reaction you should have to a God who loves you like this? He says, I want you to, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Now, if you have been reading and studying with us through the Old Testament law, I know it might have seemed a little tedious at times, but you noticed a lot about sacrifice. How do you do it? How do you present a sacrifice to God? Now, you know what you first noticed? You first noticed that it had to be unblemished. That you didn't bring a blemished lamb. You didn't bring a defective animal. You did not do that. You brought a a purified one. So when I go before God and you go before God, what's he say you should do? You should go before God in a holy way, in an acceptable way to him. You seek to live a life like that as a living sacrifice, an unblemished life. And that's the goal we have is to live a life that's obedient to the faith. The second thing you noticed about it is that you only gave your best. Do you remember that? As you're reading through, it says, if you're presenting um, an offering to God of agriculture, you bring the first fruits and you bring the best. God deserves your best. You don't just give him a part of your life. You don't give him the leftovers. 
You give him the best of your energy, the wholeness of your love. You give him everything you have. That's what you're supposed to do. If someone were to bring a sacrifice to the temple or tabernacle, and, and it was the, the, the leftovers, it was the, the least wanted, they would say, you're not even allowed to bring it. God says, if you're going to do this for me, you need to do it in a holy way. Seek to live a holy life, and you need to give it with the best of all you are. Now, now you're ready for this? It also had to be complete. You can't give God just part of your life. Why is that? You never partially sacrifice anything. You know, you don't bring your lamb and put it on the altar and go, oh, I'll just stab this one and let it run off. No, what they did is it died and it was burned completely. And you know what God says? I want you to come wholeheartedly. I want you to come with everything you got. And he said, if you're going to be a living sacrifice, your life needs to show that. It needs to be about everything about who you are and you're not going to hold back. And that's why I see chapter 12 verse 1 says, I urge you, brethren, I urge you, I beg you. By the mercies of God, according to his mercy, his grace, in a reaction to his love, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, now get into the next section. Get ready for this. This is really starts to get practical. And I want to encourage you, please try to hang with me through this whole next piece. I want you to catch the whole piece. And it says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that... Now why? So that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. He says, I don't want you pressed into the world's mold. That's the word conformed. It literally means by pressure to be put into a mold and molded. He said the world should not be allowed to do that to you. You are to be transformed into Christ-likeness. You're to seek to live your life conformed to the image of Christ. That's what this whole idea of level four is. There were disciples seeking to be like Jesus. Even in Romans chapter eight, God's great call to you was you would be conformed into the image of his son. And you know what? He says, so knowing that, don't let the world press you into its mold. But all the time, whether you know it or not, as soon as you walk out of these doors, there's all this pressure for you to be like everybody else around you. And Jesus said something. He said, if the world hated me, it will hate you. And the truth of the matter is, is we too often are so caught up in the world, nobody can see any difference in us. But if we would live a life that's different, he says this, he said, it would prove that God is true. It would prove his will works. It would prove his ways work. You know, in the 1980s, in the 1980s, study after study was done and they found out something. That people who claimed to be Christians and went to church together, studied the Bible either together or separately consistently, and had a ministry. Only one in 1,087 of those couples divorced. And in the 1980s, most people who got married, one and two divorced. And you know what? Back then we'd say, see, if you would live your life for God, look how it works. Do you know what's going on today? Do you know what the percentage of Christians divorcing is today? One and two. Just like the world. We got pressed into the mold. I mean, doesn't that grieve you? Now, I know there's some of you right now going, Chuck, you know what? I, I wasn't me. I stood up here, and I said for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, and I meant it, and I'd hang in, and they walked out on me, and I know that happened to some, so many of you. But let me tell you what scares me is there's an incredible number of people go, I'm a Christian, and they're the one walking away. They vowed to God and lied to him. And that for better or for worse was a lie. I've sat with people and go, well, you know, I'm just not happy. And I honestly, I know this seems callous. This is why you don't want to come for me for counseling. Because I look right at them and say, who cares? Do you think I care about your happiness? 
I care about your conviction. I care about you being a person of your word. I could care less about your happiness right now. Go and love them unconditionally, you know? We've lost something, and we've lost what it means to live this out. And when we do, you know what? Our children's lives are better. Uh, when we do, we affect the community better. When we do, we find our lives being everything God wants it to be. I can promise you this. If you seek first the kingdom of God in his right ways, it all comes together for you in the end. And, and you know, God's great desire is that you and I learn that. And he says, so don't let the world conform you into its image. But there's this pressure to do it. And then James warns us of something. In James, he says this. He says in James chapter 4, 3 to 5, he goes, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasure. Before I read on, don't miss what he's saying. He said, you are telling me you love God and you're praying and not getting answers. You're asking God. You're asking God for help and you're not getting help. You're asking God for deliverance. You're not getting deliverance. You're asking God for provision. You're not getting it. He said, why? Because you're more interested in your own pleasure than you are in following the ways of God. And then he nails the issue. In chapter 4, verse 4, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose when it says, He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Did you catch that? He says to you and he says it to me. He says, when you become a friend of the world, you're my enemy. See, we can't miss the fact that God loves you more than you know, but you also can't miss the fact that God says, I am not mocked. If you sow to the flesh, you're not going to reap good things from it. If you sow to your own personal pleasures, you're not going to get my spirit, and you're not going to get my love, and you're not going to get my provision, and you can't say you're fine with me. And he says, if you're a friend of the world, you're my enemy. And we've got to understand, and notice the word there, an adulteress. He says, do you realize you, what you've done to God, how you betrayed him? You betrayed what it means to be with Jesus? He says, don't be a friend of the world. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't be pushed into this mold. In Isaiah chapter 5, there's an indictment that I think fits our country maybe even better than it fit Isaiah's time. In Isaiah 5, verse 20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute light or darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for the sweet and sweet for the bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own minds. We live in a world today that calls good evil and evil good. And every time we stand up and should, by the way, stand up and say, You're wrong. The world reacts against us, and praise God it does, because if we fit into a world like this, woe to us. If we fit in here, there's something wrong. We live in a world today that if I walk on any high school campus in this area and I start talking about abstinence, do you think I'm going to get cheers? You know, it's like, no, 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 you just don't understand. Abstinence doesn't work. So you know what does work? Let's give 13-year-olds condoms and let them go out and have sex freely. And, and you know, I want to say something to you if you haven't thought about it. First of all, God says it's wrong. Second of all, there's not a 13-year-old out there that ought to be having sex. And, and they're, they're not emotionally ready. And maybe we'll protect their body. We're not going to protect their soul. We're not going to protect their emotion. We're not going to protect the heartache, the warping of their personality. And, and you know what? God, God says there's a reason you just don't do this. But we live in a world today that when we stand up and say, stay pure, the answer is, oh, that's just so, that, that, that doesn't even make sense. That's not even intellectually astute. And, and the world's wrong. The world's wrong about almost everything. 
And uh, God's right about everything. And we need to say that that's what we're conformed to. We know we're living in the last days. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, here's part of what it tells us about, to tell us we're in those last times. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrine of demons. Did you catch that? There's all these lying spirits out there, these lying things being said. And it's really demonic doctrine. And it goes, by means of hypocrisy of liars, they are seared in their own conscience as with the branding iron. Now, I want you to think about why we just read that. It says because as a society, you know you're in the last days when the society and the world around you doesn't have a conscience anymore. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't have a conscience. It can't, it can't even formulate the idea that certain things are wrong. Now, as bad as that is for a society, it's, i got to say it's worse for an individual. When you and I keep participating in things that are not going to make us holy and acceptable to God, and we get to the place that doesn't even bother us anymore, See, that's the difference on level four. I'm not saying up here you're not going to fall. I'm not saying you're going to not do something wrong. But when you're up here and you do it, it grieves you that you did it. When you're down here, you're just like, you justify it. And you're, you're like, oh, it doesn't matter. And maybe you don't even notice it's wrong anymore. And uh, God says, man, the, the spirit... The Spirit explicitly says, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit warrants a day's coming where people just are going to be so oblivious to what's right and wrong, they're not even going to have a consciousness sensitive to it. And you know what God says to us through Paul in Romans 12? He, in verse 2, do not be conformed to a world like that. Don't be pressed into a world like that. Don't let it get to you. Now, now how do we keep it from happening? The answer is this. Why do we ask you? Why do I, I I'm actually, I'm going to always beg you to every single day be in this word. To read it. I, if you don't journal, I guess that's not for everybody, but I love journaling. Matter of fact, you're going to hear from a group of us that do. Now, why is that? Because what happens is we read these scriptures and we say, God, make sure that my mind is transformed from the world around me. And, and it let, may let my mind be renewed to the way of thinking that's yours. And God, I want your ways and I want your will. And I want to see things from your vantage point. And uh, a few of us were sitting around talking and we were saying, man, this is just something we have such a burden for. Not, not out of anger. Not out of any, any desire for hurting anybody. It's because people are getting hurt. And, uh, and, and I think God's getting grieved. So uh, the other day, I was sitting and I was in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I wanted God to transform my mind. And, and listen to this. Chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from all sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Did you catch that? We're going to read on, but God, you'll judge this. And we're not to live like that, like everybody else lives. We're to be sanctified. We're to be holy. You'll judge this. God, you're, you're the avenger in this. It goes on to say, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. We're rejecting God when we don't listen to this. Here's the prayer that hit me. 
My father, my heart aches and my spirit is grieved that the world has crept into your church. It's like we do not see and we pretend not to know that this is serious to you. I hurt for the young girl who gives her purity away, not realizing it is a gift from you that is meant to be cherished. I am sad for the young man who is caught in living by and for lust, not realizing this robs him of your presence and your power. I am so concerned for couples who call it living together, not realizing you call it fornication. Not understanding to you it is an abomination and a perversion and they are dishonoring the marriage bed. And I truly tremble inside that they do not know that in reality they're rejecting you and that, Lord, you're going to judge them. Here is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why, because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. But you have been unfaithful to her, though she remains your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does God want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. The world says you can get a divorce for a variety of reasons. If you're not happy in your marriage or if you've fallen out of love with your spouse, or you love another person, or even if it's just too hard. The world says, by all means, get a divorce because your happiness is what matters the most. I had several worldly reasons for wanting a divorce. When I came to that decision, I told my three young girls I was divorce, divorcing their mom. After I finished my well-rehearsed speech, the three of them looked up at me from the sofa where they sat quietly. And one of them asked with tears in her eyes, why, Papa, why? I really didn't have a good reason after all. And after being divorced for almost 14 years, I still don't. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. The world tells us that it's just who they are. 
that it doesn't affect anyone else. So why should we have an issue with it? 12 years ago yesterday, my family sat in the living room as my dad told my sister and I that he is gay. I didn't know what to do. I just let out this long guttural scream. I felt like my soul had just been ripped from my body. The man I grew up loving and respecting had chosen sex over his family, over God. I still love him, but it hurts to see him walking away from the truth. Dear Lord, as a mother of two babies, it breaks my heart when the world calls it a woman's right to choose. That phrase sounds so diplomatic and easy to accept, but it is so far from the truth. Your perspective is not as palatable. To you, it is not a right to choose or even abortion. To you, it is murder. How have we become so callous to the fact that babies are being robbed of their lives daily? Who speaks for those babies? The womb should be the safest place in the world, and yet these children aren't even safe in their mother's womb. The other day, my little Noah's simple comment made me realize that these babies are left totally defenseless. He told me he was scared, and before I had a chance to respond, he said, It's okay. Mommy, Daddy here. At his precious age of one, he knew that it was our job to protect him and that he was safe because we would make sure of it. Who protects these unborn babies being led away to their deaths by their protectors? Will no one speak for them? Rescue those who are unjustly sentenced to die. Save them as they stagger to their death. Don't excuse yourself by saying, look, we didn't know. For God understands all hearts and he sees you. He who guards your soul knows you knew. He will repay all people as their actions deserve. You know, um, you might be tempted to say, hey, almost to the point you're throwing stones here. And I want to tell you, I don't think that's what we're doing. Pam and I. Uh, Pam and I murdered a baby through abortion. And uh, what happened still grieves us to this day that we, we made such a horrible, horrible decision and our baby suffered. And so I, I'm not throwing a stone at anybody else. But I got to tell you this, is I in no way today could ever say that sin's okay. And uh, what I can say is to God, God, how could you love me after what I've done and who I've been? Not just in that, but in so many other things. And then I look at the book of Romans and I see it's by faith that I'm saved. And it makes me want to live with this God who would love like that. And it's because of his great mercies that I want to present myself to him. And i got to tell you, there's a lot of times that I sit down and, and I look and I think, God, I can't believe that you've accepted me. I can't believe you love me. I can't believe you've taken me and allowed me to be even a servant of yours. And I don't deserve it. But you know what's different with God? When I hear his voice, I hear him say to me, but Chuck, you're worth it. You know what? Jesus loves you. And you're worth the fact that he died on the cross for you. But what made him die was sin. And I hope you would agree with me today and say there's no sin worth the death of Jesus Christ. Nothing 
I can imagine be worth me doing that would put that kind of pain upon him. But I can't help but to love a God who would love like that. And today, I want to ask you, are you someone who is a living, holy sacrifice to God? Are you living in a life with him where you're all out committed to him because he gave so much to you? And if you're not, let me tell you, that he could not love you more than he does. He loves you in spite of that. But you're missing out on this amazing relationship with him he wants you to experience. And how do we experience it? What did it say? If you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you would believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he died on the cross and rose from the dead for you. If you would call on the name, Romans 10, 17 says, call on the name of the Lord, you'd be saved. And today I'm going to give you a chance to do that. If you've never done it before, we're right where you're sitting. You can whisper a prayer and call out to him. And he is going to come and love you and care for you. Jesus died to forgive us of sin. He also died, don't miss this, to take away the pain of our hurt. And he died to make us new, alive, and changed. There's a life you were meant to live. And if you say yes to him, you're going to get to live it. Now today, if you've never done that before, when we go to prayer time, I'll give you a chance just to whisper those words. We'll pray it together. Today, if you at one time were walking with Christ, but you moved away, you got caught up in something, let me tell you too, he couldn't love you more than he does. But he wants you back. And the way you come back is you share that same prayer again to say, I want you to be the Lord of my life, the authority of my life. I want this back. I'm going to ask you also to pray in this time. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, I pray today that your, your words, what you teach us through Paul in the book of Romans, what you teach us, Lord, as we've read those other passages, God, I pray it would transform our thinking. And Lord, we need to continually revisit what your word has to say so our minds are constantly conformed and molded into the image of Jesus with your perspective and your attitudes and your love and your kindness and your truth. And I pray that we would live our lives in an all-out committed way with you and for you. And Lord, I ask right now for your Holy Spirit to come in this room. I ask God that you would fill this place with your presence. And I pray right now there would be people here, Lord, men here, women here, guys and girls here, Lord, that you would begin to touch them in such a way that they would know this is their time to commit themselves to you, to say yes to you. Lord, I pray that they would really sense somehow deep down inside how much you love them. And if they're like me and they've committed things and done things they shouldn't have done, God, I pray you'd stir in such a way that they would know this is their day to be set free. Your cleansing is incredible and your restoration is amazing. So let's just whisper these words together. Just say them with me. Just say, Lord Jesus, I know you love me. And I know you died on the cross to forgive me of my sins, to heal me of my hurts, to make me alive, to make me new, and to make me yours. And I say, yes, I want this. And I want you. So I open my heart to you. Please fill me with your love and fill me with your spirit and help me be 
who you have always created me to be. And help me live the life you have for me to live. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, praise God. Wow. Praise the Lord. Man.